Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. The Yield Disruptors, the biggest names in business, culture, and politics. Hear how successful influencers scored big and became the movers and shakers pushing everything forward. Gain from their insight and advice and avoid the setbacks that might keep you from achieving your true potential. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and leave a review if you enjoy the content. This is the Yield Disruptors. Hi there. Welcome to Yield Street's Disruptors podcast, where we sit down with industry leaders and disruptors to discuss how they've reimagined and changed their industries and the leadership skills necessary to create new business opportunities. Today, we are joined by Troy Templeton, who's the managing partner at Trivest, where they help founder-owned companies grow and evolve in the ever-changing marketplace by adding value to the organization without disrupting their culture or compromising their ideals and operational philosophies. Troy, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Michael. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. So, Troy, let's start really simple. Tell us a little bit about the your background and what led you to start Trivest. Sure. Unlike a lot of kids growing up, I never wanted to be a baseball player. Uh, never wanted to play for the Yankees uh, or, or the Cubs. Um, and maybe I wanted to play pool. You know, it's more like the Minnesota Fats and, and go around the pool halls. But I knew I wasn't the, the real athletic guy and always had a fascination with business. Back then, would read about the robber barons with Carnegie and Rockefeller and uh, sparked my imagination, just the business world. Where did and, you grow up, Troy? In Chicago. Okay. Um, moved to Florida, where I currently reside, uh, when I was 10 years old. And so I've been here ever since down in Miami, Florida, which is a great place. Uh, you can kind of see we we choose our background to be a little evocative of, of uh, where we're from. Maybe it looks a little uh, like Cuba with the, uh, with the old car behind us, but we like the diversity and the Latin flair of our city. I was describing it recently as I think Miami's a little bit of a cross between New York and LA, uh, hopefully the best parts of both. And so it wasn't the most athletic, Chicago to Miami, and how did you land on private equity? Well, I always wanted to run a business, always wanted to be an owner of a business and uh, had no idea, you know, didn't come from uh, a family of means, went through school and uh, thought, uh, but always financially oriented and went uh, first to work for a bank for six years. And I enjoyed working for a bank because I got to see so many different businesses, meet a lot of owners. They were all privately held companies, some small, some medium, some large. But uh, you were never really, you're the banker, <laughs> and they would never necessarily bring you into their confidence, even though you might want to really try to help them. You were, you were a, a service provider, a, a provider of capital. And uh, I, I said, I like this. I'm learning a lot, but I'd really like to get closer to businesses. And this is back in the mid-80s. So I worked uh, for a bank from 83 to 89. 
And one of our customers was a firm called Trivest, uh, which is, as you can see from behind me, the, the company that I ended up joining. It wasn't a company I was familiar with or a company that I uh, worked with. And private equity wasn't even a term back then. You know, it was a firm making investments in, in companies. And uh, one of the partners there I was friendly with, and, and uh, when I learned what they were doing, I thought, this is fascinating you get an opportunity to be an owner in a lot of different types of businesses. But back then it was uh, called LBOs, leverage buyouts, and uh, they hadn't come up with a nice moniker of, of, of private equity. And uh, But I thought this was fascinating and uh, actually took a pretty big step backwards in my career. I've done that a couple of times where, you know, you, in order to move forward, sometimes you have to you take a step back in order to, to get yourself back on the right path. And I did that by coming to Trivest. I was doing very well at the bank, had a proverbial corner office, uh, uh, a staff, you know, high visibility, upward mobility, and then decided to, but that I didn't think that was where I wanted to be long-term. And so started off at the bottom at Trivest, uh, learning, learning the skills, working hard, and what again what i really liked was the ability to be a, an owner in a lot of different businesses and uh, not just be a provider of capital but actually being able to be an owner and, and help that business grow what type of businesses do you guys invest in at trivest we are not sexy so if you look at we currently have 42 portfolio companies total sales are about three and a half billion dollars and just to give you a sense of, of growth, uh, just a few years ago, we had less than 20 and we were around a billion and a half in sales. So we've been on a, a fairly rapid curve. Uh, it it kind of goes back to Michael, Mike Callen's book, Good to Great, where we really have our flywheel going now and it doesn't take as much energy to get a lot done. By the way, anyone listening, that's a great, that's a great, sorry to interrupt, that's a great little red book, Good to Great, and uh, you should definitely definitely take a shot at reading that book. Sorry. Jim, Jim Collins, I think, right? Mm -hmm. uh, smoke his first name. Too many mics around. Um, is from an industry standpoint, kind of three main verticals that we look at. And if you went back in the 80s, it would have been US-based manufacturers. That would have been 80% of what we do. Now it's about 20% but growing <laughs> because there's always an ebb and a flow. Secondly, consumer. And back in the 80s, that was the, the next biggest vertical, but now that has been uh, supplanted by business services, uh, kind of like what you're in. And so, you know, the service related industry is now about 75% of the types of investments that, that we make. And then, um, uh, but still the other two verticals of US-based manufacturing and consumer. Within that, we left things that we like and we don't like, but we have everything from a, a plumbing business to a distributor of uh, lubricants to a, um, uh, a generator uh, service and repair business to food businesses, uh, to uh, energy related parts manufacturing. Uh, just a, a potpourri of different businesses. And we like it that way. A lot of things you'd never even think of would be a business. The common element in all of these are uh, one thing, they're all founder family owned and they're all successful. We're not interested in investing in companies that are troubled and we are only interested in partnering with a, a founder or family and helping them take their business to the next level. The thing that 
amazed me most about Trivest Troy when we met and started to talk was the sheer number of investments that you've been able to effectuate. My experience with private equity is you got a bunch of smart people and they target a particular sector and they sometimes target a particular geography. They spend a ton of time mapping those two elements. They start talking to companies. They meet a bunch of folks. Where I'm going is they spend a lot of time to ultimately do one, maybe two deals a year. And when we had met, you had told me that you were doing way more than that. And I'm not going to spoil it by letting you tell everybody. And I'm still fascinated by that. And so one is, I'd like you to share with us, how many deals do you look to do a year, number one? Number two, how do you identify, so source and underwrite those number of deals? And then we'll get into that a bit more. Sure. It may be just, uh, you know, starting with the conclusion to, to put some numbers around what we're doing at TriVest. We see over 4,000 companies per year. Of those 4,000, we actually meet and have a conversation with over 700 founders per year. So you think about that, there's about 240 workdays in, in the year. We're meeting with a founder on average three times a day. Uh, to put that in perspective, the average private equity firm in America is meeting with about 25 founders a year. 25 to So 50. how do you do it? Doing 10x plus. How do you do and it? We, sure, and we closed 52 investments last year. We do it by That's amazing. Things. It's unbelievable. Uh, this year, just to give you a sense too, that that's not an anomaly. Uh, this year, we have already closed on 26 transactions through the first six months of the year. And we currently have 34 under letter of intent. We could be surpassing 50 deals here uh, by the end of the summer. So I know this will be, hopefully when this is uh, uh, released for broadcast, we'll be, uh, have already announced our, you know, high 40s uh, deals. So how do we do that? Uh, one, you know, I think your program is perfect, disruptive. I think that we have become disruptive and a disruptor within private equity as a conscious strategy. Uh, we looked at all the other private equity firms and basically said, that's not who we want to be. If you think about the average private equity firm, what they are doing is waiting for the deal to come to them. They're waiting for the investment bank to say, this company is for sale and we put together a nice uh, prospectus or offering memorandum and then they reach out and call everybody that they know uh, to say, we have this business for sale, are you interested? And so that's, if you think about it, you're, you're basically sitting at home and waiting for DoorDash to bring, bring the food to you. We are hunters, we are not gatherers. We go out and uh, we built our firm on a very different basis. Almost 20% of our firm is marketing. You're not gonna, hear that very often from a private equity firm. So almost 20% of our firm is in, uh, is in business development. And our goal is to go out and introduce ourselves to companies that may or may not be for sale, but to have conversations with business owners and say, would you like to become a great business? 
And that's what we do. At the end of the day, Trivest, we are building great businesses, one business at a time. And that can become compelling. Founders, so, so number one is just our marketing strategy around our, our sourcing. Two, we're also fishing in the biggest pond. Most private equity firms are, are focused not necessarily just on founder family-owned businesses. They're focused on doing spin-outs from corporates, buying companies from other private equity firms, taking a firm private. Oh, and we'll look at founder family-owned businesses. But if you look at the total population of companies out there, over 90% of companies are privately held. Why not focus on that? So first of all, it's it's amazing to to see a process built around closing 50 deals a year and seeing thousands and meeting 700. One might ask an obvious question, which is how do you build the expertise to be able to do that level of diversity and volume of types of businesses mm-hmm. and continue to maintain focus? And of course, anyone can put money out. It's about bringing it back home. So performance ultimately has to back that strategy up. And in my opinion, Trivest performance absolutely does. And so as a leader of the firm, one is I'd like to know, how do you think about building domain expertise or is that not important? I.e. like how have you made sure that you can comfortably invest across different vertices? And number two is, and almost more importantly for our podcast, when you were thinking and building out Trivest, had you had doubts about the model? Have you had doubts about high volume? Have you had doubts about the level of diversification that you were going to seek after? And how did you gain sort of the clarity and the fortitude to work through those doubts to ultimately build Trivest, which is really successful? That's a great question, Michael, and I'm gonna put you a little bit in the way back machine. So I joined the firm in 1989 at the bottom as a, an assistant vice president. I was the one and only assistant vice president uh, ever to work at Trivest. Worked my way through, and if you look back in the early 80s, the very first deal that Trivest did was acquire a company for $10 million, a plastics business. They put in $10,000 of equity. Two years later, they sold it for $20 million. Not a bad return on a $10,000 investment. <laughs> As you can imagine, in the early 80s, they didn't call that private equity or anything else, it was bootstrap. That kind of return is going to attract a lot of people. So Trivest during the 80s was just kind of thinking, oh, this is the way to do deals. Uh, but the, uh, the number of participants in the industry greatly expanded. In, 90, in the 90s, Travis didn't really change that much, yet the industry was growing up and maturing very quickly. At the end of the 90s in 2000, when, when I uh, took over the firm on a day-to-day basis and uh, began you know, purchasing out our partner, really we're at an inflection point. And I looked at the industry and I said, okay, well, here's the way the industry is going. The industry is going exactly as you said, Michael, where people were looking at, uh, waiting for the company to come in, going through a big process, putting a lot of team on it, paying a, a higher and higher multiple because the only way to differentiate yourself was by the purchase price you would pay. I said, that's not a good game. If we look at the most successful deals we had done in our history at that time, which was almost 20 years, 
our most successful opportunities were where we invested in a, a privately held business, a founder family owned business, and we improved it. And we did add-on acquisitions, we helped with strategy, and we were able to expand that business into something three, four, five times bigger. So I said, that's a better model. And then when I looked at it and I said, well, geez, founder family owned businesses uh, comprise, uh, uh, you know, and then the other thing with private equity is bigger, 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 bigger. Well, let's just big, do bigger, bigger, bigger deals uh, because you can make more money. We went the other way. We said small can be big. Let us focus on the smaller end, the lower end of the middle market where we actually think we can bring even more value. The larger the company, the less they really need a private equity partner. The smaller the business, the more they need a private equity partner to help them grow. So we looked at the, the, the industry at the time and said, we're at an inflection point because we were just like everybody else. I call it a Jambog. Have you ever heard the term Jambog? No, I haven't. Jambog. What is that? Jambog is just another middle market buyout group. And I didn't want to be a Jambog. I wanted us to be something very different. And so we set out the strategy of saying, okay, we need to stop being everything for everybody. Our audience can't be that we're great for buying companies from private equity, great from founder families, doing privates, all this other stuff. And let's just focus. And again, just like Jim Collins, once you focus on one thing, you can be good at it. It actually freed us up to do a lot more because now we only had to speak to one constituent, which was a founder. And what we found when we started talking to founders was they didn't have a great impression of private equity. <laughs> That's literally my next question for you. Exactly right, right? Who's written a positive article about our industry? So, just... so how do you get a founder comfortable with TriVest? There's one, right? But it's like a much bigger right. question. There's two, there's two parts to it. One is there are so many major private equity brands today. And granted that your focus on small to middle market gives you some edge, right? Because it's just less competition in that space. But nonetheless, there's plenty of places. And so what's what makes Trivest the winner? And with a focus on you guys are specifically looking at family or founder-owned businesses, I believe that it would be fair to say that family and founder-owned businesses are run by people who have incredibly high conviction about the business they built, the business they started, the way they'd run the business, the culture, the team, the people. But at the same time, your interest is likely to invest in said business to bring a whole host of services and expertise that Trivis can to create more value. How do you find the balance between you know, sh focusing on a strategy of family founder owned, but also giving enough latitude and being a good fiduciary? Like, How does that all come together? Sure. At Trivest, our, our number one focus is always to do what's best for the company. So from a fiduciary responsibility, I feel like, you know, if, if I'm worrying about myself and the deal, that's not going to lead to a great result. If the founder is only focused on him or herself, that's not going to lead to a great deal. If both of us are focused on, let's do what's best for the company, its management team, its customers, its suppliers, their employees, we're more likely to get the right result. Also, because most of our uh, investments are not really competitive processes, nobody's operating with a gun to their head. 
<laughs> Nobody makes good decisions with a gun to their head. And so what we try to do is always have a, a very much a partnership approach. And by the way, everybody says this in private equity. The difference is how do you prove it out? We have something we call the just say no approach. So when we sit down with the founder for the first time, and this goes to the heart of your first part of your question, which is how do we convince uh, a, a, a founder that we are different, we're different than, than the others because everybody will say, hey, we're good people, we're smart, we're gonna help you. It's just the price of admission. It's what everybody says. Nobody's gonna say, hey, we're really tough. We're, we're, gonna, we're only gonna be out for ourselves. We're only looking for a dollar return and uh, we don't really care about you. We're, we're, we're cared about our, care about ourselves. Nobody's gonna say that. So, but you have to prove how you're different. So we have something called the Just Say No program. Of course, Nancy Reagan started Just Say No and Just Say No to Drugs, and we're we're certainly in favor of that. I guess now you can say <laughs> Just Say Yes to Cannabis, but you know, and we'll say Just Say No to, to everything else. And, and that's the cornerstone of Tribus, because what we've done with our Just Say No program is basically remove the pain points for founders that many other buyers, not just private equity firms, but any buyer is going to put in place. Imagine for a moment, you're, you are, you're a founder of a business, a highly successful business in a very crowded field, right? There are yep. hundreds of competitors. How do you differentiate? Tribus is the same way. There are thousands of competitors. There's thousands of people out there looking to invest in and acquire companies. How do we differentiate ourselves? How do we disrupt ourselves? And for us, it has to be that initial interaction. One, we recognize that our customer is a founder who probably doesn't think much of us. They've read those articles in Wall Street. They, they think we're, uh, they have the image of a wolf of Wall Street type spewing champagne and you know conning people so we sit down immediately and try to uh, recognize that that's their uh, thinking process over half of private equity firms the first thing they're going to do in sitting now the founder is say we want we require you to reinvest in the company a significant portion of your proceeds Michael, if you ever go to sell, they're gonna look at you as, as, as the Messiah and the person that's very important to the business, and they're gonna want you to reinvest. Well, you know what we found? Why, one, why would you require anybody to reinvest or, or do anything in investment unless it was going to improve its return? We've invested in hundreds of companies, and what we found is there's no correlation between your reinvestment and the results. So therefore, we've taken that off the table. And we say, Michael, you just meeting us today for the first time. Get to know us. If you think we're going to be good for your business, for your employees, your management team, customers, suppliers, we would welcome you to reinvest. But now instead of making it our requirement, it's now your option. The second thing private equity firms do is they put a lot of debt. They screw up your balance sheet because <laughs> they have to pay for the company. Yep. Um, at Trivest, we, we have 42 companies. None of them have what is known as subordinated debt. That's the high cost debt that's sitting behind the bank debt. A lot of people call them the loan to own people. So they're waiting for a, a misstep. You can have a complicated capital structure. At Trivest, none of our companies have subordinated debt, only bank debt, a lower leverage. Uh, we're, we're covering our interests very high, uh, and so we put in a very, uh, very good level of, 
of a high amount of equity uh, to provide a, a, a security net. When you're investing in smaller companies, they do have a higher business risk by definition. And so the last thing you want to do is also have a high financial risk. So when we look at a business, we say, if we've got slightly higher business risk, let's lower the financial risk. We also uh, are men of our, uh, women of our words. And uh, we're very proud of the fact of the 52 companies that we invest in last year. If you sh we show you the letter of intent and show you the purchase agreement, there won't be one penny difference. Unfortunately, some people within private equity have a reputation for the, the hosing at the closing. And they'll call you up, Michael, right before the day they close, say, we're ready to close, Michael, but, and they're kind of like Columbo, but one more Always. thing to talk about. <laughs> so Troy, if, if you're an entrepreneur and you're listening to this podcast now, right? And yes. you're wondering if you should sell your business or how to go about that. You know, people, I think, are often nervous to consider the sale of their business. Some think it's a sign of weakness. Others don't know how to go about uh, the process of a sale. They, they don't want to trust a banker. They think they're too small for a banker. They don't want to be distracted. You know, in, in a minute or less, what's the message to an entrepreneur out there about how to think about creating some optionality in an exit or some, you know, bringing private equity as a partner? Number one you need to be thinking about this in advance, years in advance, uh, ideally, and setting your company up. We, even us at TriVest, uh, a year before we think we might be taking company to sell, we're sitting down with the management team and doing an exit preparation and have a whole, a whole set of steps that we help lead our companies through to prepare. So one, think about it ahead of time. Two, this is a very emotional topic. So emotionally, you have to be prepared for, uh, this is your baby. This is something you spent your life building and you need to be prepared with what you want. And what you may want is different than, than what somebody else may tell you that you should want. And that's okay. It should be what you want. You can drive the script. You should drive the script. You shouldn't rely on your advisors to tell you what to do. You should get advice from the advisors, but ultimately it's your decision. You may want to continue to invest in, and have a role. You may want to continue to run the business. You may want to exit stage right the day after. All of those are your choices and they're good choices for you. You do need to decide that. I wouldn't go in just totally, I don't know. You should have flexibility, but you should have a plan of action that you want to embark upon. You should have your company ready for sale. I believe in transparency. I think it's important to talk to your management team, to let them know what you're thinking and to bring in the people that matter to, into the, the discussion. If you try to sell a business without allowing the management team to ever know what's going on, you're not gonna get the, the desired result. As far, as far as whether you hire an advisor, you're always gonna have some advisor at some point in the process. The earlier you put your team together, the better. Do you need an investment banker? Over half the companies that we invest in do not have an advisor. The purchase prices and multiples that we pay for those businesses are not much different than the ones that we do pay with an advisor. There's a fair market value. And so you don't necessarily need an advisor, but I do suggest you should always talk to two or three people before making a decision, unless you're just very comfortable. We like it when somebody you're talking to somebody else and not just us because you have a point of comparison. Otherwise, whatever we say, whatever value, you have no idea. It's always good to get a, a point of comparison. 
On the other hand, it needs to be a valid point of comparison. You need to be sure that uh, what one person is telling you is something they actually can deliver on. And that's uh, the one of the problems with, uh, with any potential acquirer, will they actually follow through? And at Trivest, when we're divesting of uh, or selling an asset, you know, it's our number one thing. It doesn't matter what's on the piece of paper. It matters of whether or not you're going to get to the closing. But really, so think Tri- ahead, prepare the company, and find out, understand what you personally want for yourself and your family. So, Troy, looking back at your career, what have been one or two major setbacks, and how did you overcome them? Like times where you were just felt your back was against the wall, the pressure was on, and you thought you were making a decision. What is least bad? You know, some some of those challenging times. I think the toughest thing was when we said, we're not going to look at deals anymore from private equity groups. We were, when you, when you said, we're basically going to take the biggest part of the market, the sale market out, and we're not going to do those deals anymore. We had a lot of people say that is nuts (laughs) because, uh, most people. No, I, I mean more like a deal blew up in your face, or you know, a deal blew up like, in our like face. A, a real issue, you know, not not a not a not a course change in strategy. You know, right. real pressure, real uh, issue could be a deal blows up, a regulatory issue, a company's not what you expect it to be. Uh, who knows? But so, something really challenging, and how yeah. to overcome that? We we had uh, a company in New York um, that um, made. Uh, uh, window curtains and sold primarily to the mass. And we had a, a very large customer relationship. Uh, we had done all of our diligence, uh, met with that customer. And about six months after the, uh, the acquisition, that customer basically decided to go private label. And we were at a point where the earnings went down almost 90%. Um, it was a uh, fairly large investment and an early investment in a, in a fund. And we were confronted with, what do you do? You know, it still was a good company, uh, but uh, it, it, it had a, you know, a, a shock that uh, was tough to overcome. And necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, so one of the things we, we did, uh, we just sat down with a team and we said, okay, how, how do we overcome this? Where are, you know, or do we just fold up the tent and say goodbye? Because we knew there would need to be some reinvestment uh, to keep the company going just to make payroll. And we knew that uh, we had to have a long-term vision for the business. We actually also had a founder who was ready to um, stick with it, but also was, had told us from the start that he wanted to be on for about a year or so and, and move on. And so we were confronted with you know, just about every every nasty thing you could have. Uh, bank obviously was unhappy. And so we had that set of, of elements. Uh, luckily, you know, we, we had not put in subordinated debt because at that point the gig would have been up. Uh, we were able to work out a, uh, an accommodation with the senior lender to give us some time. And we sat down with uh, something we call a whiteboarding process. And we sat down with the management team and said, okay, we're all in this together. How do we get out of it? 
And in one meeting in about two hours time, Michael, we sat down and came up with ideas on how we could regain um, uh, almost $10 million of, of operating profit with different ideas. And in that two hour session, we took a company that had no hope and the management team walked out of that room with not only a hope, but a, a feeling that they could, they could achieve. Two years later, we were uh, above our prior numbers and we had a, a, a successful, so you know, leaving, successful company. So leaving TriVest out of it, what is a lesson learned in a moment of difficulty that could be applied to a broader audience here that's listening to us? You're faced sure. with a whole bunch of issues you have the yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think one is don't panic. Um, you know, I think anytime I've just seen people panicking, you're not going to make good decisions. You've got to set two. I think there's a simple answer to almost every complicated question. And I think it's really finding that simple answer uh, as your result. It's when people try to find a complicated answer to a simple question that you get your, your head in a tizzy. I like that. A simple answer to most complicated questions. And uh, so we focus on that. Um, just simple things that you can fix things quickly with, with simple, uh, simple responses. Call it the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. Yep. And, and we follow that at, at, at TriVest. Um, so Troy, I, as, I we, as we get ready to wrap up, um, sure. we're recording this in uh, right after the July 4th weekend in 2022. It's chaos in, to chaos. some degree in the market. There is a lot of uncertainty and people are trying to find value with all the different dynamics. So some of them at play are, I think you could consider on a relative basis, at least hyperinflation. You have interest rates increasing. You have Russia, Ukraine. Um, so there's a whole bunch of issues going on here. And, and here you are. Uh, with 30 companies under LOI and aggressively looking to to value and to invest in and to partner with many more founders and companies. How are you doing that in today's environment? How are you finding, A, the simplicity and B, the clarity in your strategy today? And what can you tell the rest of us that might be helpful? Sure. We live in a macro environment, but we operate in a micro environment. So at the end of the day, all of this nasty stuff that's going on, that's so depressing. I mean, I've been doing this for over 40 years and I've never seen a period that we're going through right now in terms of uh, you know, what, what's the good news out there? Who's sharing the good news? Uh, whether, whether it's political, whether it's economic, whether it's war, whether, I mean, just there isn't much good news out there. Um, maybe Tiger will win the British Open. That might <laughs> bring, bring some good news to people. But I, I, I so, um, uh, but on the other hand, when we look at our portfolio companies, there's a lot of good news. The stock market, S&P's down 20% this year. Our companies aren't. Our companies are, are all, uh, you know, not all improving, but the, the vast majority are up over the prior years. They all have their challenges, uh, but that's what I like about the micro world that we live in. When we look at a company, what's going on in Ukraine 
unfortunately, you know, fortunately for us, doesn't matter for most of our companies. What's happening with oil prices doesn't necessarily have any impact on our companies. What's happening in the stock market doesn't really have much impact. Uh, supply chain issues with service-related companies doesn't have a lot of impact. So when you look at all those list of issues, for most of our companies, maybe one or two does. Um, so it, 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 from our perspective, all this negativity that's going on it doesn't have much of an impact on what we're actually looking at from an investment standpoint. And what I will say, though, and consumer confidence right now, I think lowest ever. Right? We don't have a lot of consumer-oriented businesses. That's good. But the day, I, I personally think, all, well, hey, all wars end. The day that the war ends in Ukraine, because it, it will end at some point, may not end to the way we want to see it, but at some point it's going to be a ceasefire or an ending, that'll be a good day for, for I think, the world. And I think when that day happens, we're going to see a, a, a very nice resurgence in confidence. And I think hopefully, you know, that's sometime in the next six, six months. But uh, until then, we'll continue to look at the macro, but we're going to really live in the micro and we're going to operate in the micro. I like that. I always, we're, we're operating. I, I like that. I always say, um, focus on what's within your sphere of influence. Right. right. Yeah, I can't do anything about those big things. So. That's right. <laughs> Troy, um, I could, I feel like I could spend a lot more time with you and, and continue to really enjoy it. We're on for, uh, for I think over 40 minutes here. So we're going to let, we're going to let our folks go here. I really appreciated you joining me today. I look forward to having you again soon. I think there are some really great dialogue here about what it means to be a good private equity investor why family founders is an interesting strategy, how entrepreneurs could think about building a business with value that exceeds their own existence, so to say. I always say, you've only ever really hit success if your business is greater than you. And I think that's a realization that an entrepreneur needs to come to, not a fear. For our listeners, I hope you guys subscribe to our podcast and you can find this, this podcast on Apple, on Spotify, and YouTube. Leave us a review. Um, thank you so much for spending the time with Troy and I. And we hope to see you on the next episode of the Yield Disruptors. Thank you and see you again next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. 
trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.